This is Judaism Unbound, episode 125, Complementary Zions. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And as we continue this series looking at the present and future of the relationship of American Jews and Israel, our guest today, Zach Schaefer, is a member of the millennial generation who is working to craft new paradigms of Israel engagement in the Jewish community. In his current position, he works to build the capacity of Jewish professionals and activists to talk across ideological, generational, and religious divides. Zach works with Jewish federations and Jewish community relations councils to deepen their relationships with progressive, millennial, and non-Jewish communities. He's spoken around the country on topics including empathetic advocacy, civil discourse across divides, countering the delegitimization of Israel, Zionism, and engaging millennials. Zach is also the founder and chairperson of the Brooklyn Young Democrats Jewish Caucus, and he's a board member of Friends of Roots, an Israeli-Palestinian shared society movement. And in 2015, he was honored by the Jewish Educators Assembly as one of 20 emerging Jewish leaders in their 20s from the greater Philadelphia Jewish community. Zach Schaefer, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Great. Well, we're really excited about this conversation because there's definitely a typical story that's told in the Jewish community about millennials these days. Uh, I guess all days because millennials are these days. But there's a story (laughs) that millennials really are, as a group, not feeling connected to Israel. And I think we really wanted to talk to a millennial who doesn't necessarily feel that way and who potentially can help us get a window into a a group of millennials that are very different from the group that we tend to be told about in these various studies. And, And I just wanted to start with a little bit of getting your perspective on how you look at the story of Israel today from the point of view of, of yourself and also sort of other millennials with whom you interact. I do think that there's sort of this assumption in the Jewish community either that millennials are anti-Israel, disconnected from Israel, and more sympathetic towards the Palestinian people than the Israeli people. But then alongside that, I think in our education with millennials, we act under the assumption that young Jews will love Israel because their parents love Israel. And we teach them to defend Israel, but we often forget that we need to first have the discussion about why they should be invested in Israel in the first place. And I can say that my first engagement with Israel was through the Jewish community, of course. I had visited Israel in high school. I met with the organizers of Operation Moses and Solomon, two airlifts of Ethiopian Jews that brought them to Israel and saved their lives. And for me, I saw that Israel was a place of refuge, a place of dignifying protection, and a place where Jews could go if they had nowhere else to go. And that was a powerful sentiment as I first began to have a relationship with Israel, but I realized that it was a negative value and I was looking for a more positive vision for Israel, a stronger way to connect um, in an affirmative way and in a forward-facing way. And that's actually where I found Zionism. And I think that the conversation around Zionism is a way to reconnect the older and the younger generation in a discourse around Israel that makes sense, that's coherent and that's unifying. So to understand what you're saying here, in your view, it's not that millennials are necessarily anti-Israel or necessarily pro-Palestinian or sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. 
instead of the Israeli cause. It's more an issue that their parents, perhaps, or their grandparents, for sure, imagine that Jews are born with a love of Israel, as, as perhaps they feel that they were. And that is not the case. And I'd love to understand a little bit more in terms of if you could explain kind of why is that not the case? I think one way to understand the schism between the two generations is to look at the socio-historical conditions of the Jewish people 50 years ago compared to today. The foundation for a relationship with Israel could be assumed in my parents' generation when our grandparents were Holocaust survivors and their parents were Holocaust survivors and anti-Semitism around the world was something that was very real for them. So Israel as a place of refuge was something that was assumed and was a cornerstone of Jewish identity. What we're seeing now is that Israel, which was once the great unifier, is actually now a divider. It's something that rather than anchoring the community together is really tearing us apart because Jews my age have grown up in a time where they look at Israel and they see 50 years of occupation, they see suffering, they see a large wall separating two people. And whether or not all of this is true or all of this is the whole truth, all of this is the reality in which they view Israel. And what we need to start doing is, A, we need to stop assuming that all young Jews hate Israel or lack historical understanding of Israel and Zionism. But B, we also have to stop stop assuming that they have a love for Israel. And I think what we really need to do is change the way that we engage in education and advocacy, and certainly the way we engage in intergenerational discourse. Today, I think so much of Israel education is reductive and shallow, and it operates from a prism of fear, because people in my parents' generation looked at Israel from a fear-based lens in many ways. And I think today in our education and our conversations, we need to hold a space for complexity and depth. We need to operate out of a prism of curiosity. And we need to engage in what I would call brave and fearless education, one that allows for self-reflection and critique, and one that really allows for tough questions to be asked. And I think right now our communities are struggling to have a conversation because my generation is having a very different conversation than my parents' generation. I especially appreciate your naming of a few words that are, I think, really big ticket buzzwords in the realm of Israel in American Jewish life. And specifically, I'm thinking of education and advocacy, which you cited. And I guess I'd love to hear from you more about what you would define as goals of Israel education on the one hand, maybe what you perceive many communities think the goals of Israel education are, and what you would presume would might be better or different goals for Israel education, and also what are the goals of Israel advocacy, which is also a, a component of many Jewish communities' relationship to Israel. And most importantly for me, I mean, this is my take, and you can push me on it or agree with it, whatever feels right. My biggest take is independent of Israel education and its goals and Israel advocacy and its, what's most important to me is that they are understood not so much to be the same thing. And, and that we that we recognize that there are separations whereby the advocacy of any kind, whether one wants it to be through a particular organization or through a particular ideological lens, it really should be based on an education that's been built as a grounding and not and not just sort of assumed without a base of education. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about Israel education and Israel advocacy, how they intertwine, how they don't. One of the words I like to use when I talk about Israel is Israel engagement. So not just education or advocacy, but how can we better engage with Israel? And I think that subsumes both. 
advocacy can very often be seen as indoctrination. When we talk about advocacy, we're telling people what to say. We're telling people how to say something. When we talk about education, we're talking about why. And one of the things I realized is that I was given Israel advocacy training before I was given serious Israel education. And I think back to my college Israel advocacy days, I was involved in just about every campus organization there is. And I was given the case for Israel. I was given myths and facts, which talks about the myths of Israel and how to rebut them with facts. But I was not given an affirmative case for Israel and Zionism. I wasn't given a Zionist education. I wasn't given Der Judenstadt by Theodor Herzl. I wasn't given speeches from the Zionist congresses. You know, I wasn't given Katz Nelson and Alkali. And I found that we have to start with education. We cannot just start with advocacy. We have to start with the why, with the reason to be engaged in the first place before we move on to the what and the how. And I found that in many ways, because of that, we've taken the heart out of our advocacy. So we throw so many talking points in textbooks at students, at our younger generation, that they just walk away. Advocacy is less of a passion and more of a pain for many people. And I think what we need to do is help Jewish students, help Jewish young people build an affirmative sense of identity, a relationship with Israel. And then through that relationship, they'll find a way to meaningfully advocate that is true and sincere to them, and that fits under the meta values of the Jewish community and of the Jewish diaspora and Israel relationship. And the one thing I want to add to that as well is that I think right now Israel engagement is focused more on crisis management. And I think we need to find something that's more grounded and more prophetic than simply responding to crises. Right now, I think what we need to do is go back to the larger question about the work that we're doing and ask, how is this invigorated by a coherent vision of a meaningful and unified Jewish destiny? How can we do Israel advocacy and Israel education in a way that's not just demoralizing and in a way that's not utterly inconsistent with, with Jewish self-understanding, with Jewish aspirations, and with understanding the tension between the universal and the particular, the tension between a young Jewish community today that is cosmopolitan, assimilationist, and that doesn't like the idea of nationalism, of chauvinism, of, of a state that they see as exclusive. How can we better have that conversation in a way that's really grounded in Jewish self-understanding as to what the answers to those questions are? And I think until we really work on a new model for advocacy that isn't so misconceived, a new model for education and engagement that isn't so misconceived will never actually be able to be effective advocates. One of the things that we've really explored in the last few weeks is the question of whether, and I think it's sort of how you framed it, that this kind of drift away from Israel by young American Jews is, is kind of natural. It's kind of to be expected. It's that after a long period of time, even though it's kind of shocking to folks who remember the moment of its founding and the context that led to its founding, it's shocking to imagine that in such a short period of time, people could drift away. But we also are seeing a lot of shocking things happening in a short period of time in our world today. So what ought to be the nature of the relationship of the American Jewish community and Israel moving forward? And how can that relationship really be built and sustained as there's this parallel process of the natural drift apart of, of any two communities that are geographically and otherwise distant from one another. Dan, when I hear you ask that question, I think a larger question actually comes to mind. Ahad and Am talked about Israel as the nucleus 
for the Jewish world, a spiritual center that would feed, that we would feed off of and from which we would learn. And I think for many American Jews now, the idea of being reliant on the state of Israel or the idea of living in a, in a diaspora community is something that hurts them. How do we reshape, reform, re-understand Zionism in a way where we can appease the sentiments of many Americans who look at Zion and also look at America as centers of Jewish continuity? How can we make it so that America and Israel are not competing Zions, but are complementary Zions in some way? How can we make it in a way that the state of Israel accepts and respects the American Jewish community as a legitimate enterprise that has a future and that should exist, that can exist, and that is enriching Jewish civilization without competing with that. And I think it's trying to find that way for that mutually interdependent relationship to exist. And that's a conversation that I think we're certainly struggling to have. What does it mean to live in America when there is a Jewish country, but you feel like that country might not be your home? Is that okay? I think these are some of the questions we need to be asking. But again, sometimes advocacy is not so far away from indoctrination, and we make it hard to open up discourse, to open up dialogue, to allow room for self-critique. And there's a real trauma and a real insecurity in the Jewish community, I think, to ask the hard questions, because there's a fear of where that might go, or there's a fear to challenge that status quo. And I think we need to let go of that fear and be a little bit more brave in the way we have conversations and in the spaces we create for our education and engagement. So, Zach, I, I think it would be really interesting to get your take on something that's come up numerous times so far in this series, and that I think it's sort of like where I'm ending up as, as one of my focuses, which is that can we just talk to one another and make sure that that remains open no matter what happens? And, and I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to some of the red lines across which we cannot uh, sort of spread our big tent and that there are certain folks, and here I'm talking about Jews, there are certain Jew, Jews who have opinions that are not welcome in our community or in our conversation. And what I think is problematic about that is that that kind of restriction on speech is particularly uh, egregiously heard by young people, I think, and in particular at the university where it's contrary to the entire spirit of the endeavor. And so it just seems like a tactic that even if it had some kind of justification, it doesn't work. And in fact, it's kind of having the opposite effect of driving people further away because people who actually are not across those red lines feel like they are. And, and so there's that whole part of it. And then the other part of it is, is the even more affirmative kind of viewing as an enemy groups that are engaged with Israel, but in a way that people don't like. When you tell someone they don't belong at your table, they're going to create their own table. And that's where you start to breed competition and aversion and hostility within the Jewish community. I do think that organizations exist for different reasons. They have particular values and particular visions. And I also think that we need to be able to recognize the larger communities of which we're a part. So an organization, I think, certainly has the right to say, these are the representatives we want on our board or we want in our room, but you need to do that in a way that still allows for inclusive dialogue, for pluralist discourse, and it still allows for dissenting views to be in the room. I work for a major Jewish organization that, like 
every major Jewish organization in this country draws a pretty strong red line where the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement begins and organizations that support the BDS movement. Now, I was recently at a Lemud conference in New Orleans, and a Lemud conference is interesting because at these conferences, there are actually no red lines. Every single voice and person is welcome at the table. And I was giving a presentation on reclaiming Zionism as a progressive cause, something that certainly sounds provocative and something that sounds like we won't be able to bring people in support of that, right? Like that is going to alienate, that is not going to unify to talk about Zionism as a progressive cause. And there were people in the room from the local Jewish Voice for Peace organization, an organization uh, that protests literally outside of my office, an organization that supports the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And after I spoke, one of the leaders of JVP, of Jewish Voice for Peace, came up to me and said, Zach, you didn't speak the way I thought you would. And I said, what did you mean by that? And essentially, he had seen me as an abstraction of the institution for which I worked. He saw me as a stereotype, as a caricature of the enemy, of the other. And very quickly, when we had a conversation, and he very well came to that meeting to protest and to rebut and to argue with someone who was coming to talk about Zionism in his community, when we sat down and had a conversation, we were actually able to find many areas of agreement. We were able to find many things that we agreed about when it comes to Israel, when it comes about the Jewish community, and we were only able to have that conversation, what I would call a very productive conversation, because I was not the stereotype that he was expecting to see. And I think what that teaches me is, now I certainly, does that, that does not mean I need to invite him to come sit on the board of my organization, or that I have to change the values of my organization so that he would feel totally welcome there or totally in agreement with that. But I think we should be able to have inter-organizational, inter-ideological dialogue and conversation about Israel and about Judaism in a way that we're not able to do now. And I think I've said this a couple of times, but one way to do that is to create a meta-narrative or a meta-framework of values that we can all agree on. And I think the source for that is actually to look at Zionism and to say, how can we disagree with one another without me feeling threatened? And that's really what it is. I think much of the mainstream Jewish community feels very, very threatened. And we have a reason to feel threatened and we have a reason to feel traumatized, but we feel very threatened by people who support certain ideologies or who say certain things that we think threatens our safety or threatens the existential security of the state of Israel. So how do we have a conversation with those with whom we disagree without feeling threatened and without feeling the need to alienate and ostracize? And I think that's the conversation that I'm working to have and that we all need to be working to have. I'm really curious to think a little bit more about the Limud story uh, of this interaction that you had. And it, I mean, it brings up so many questions for me. The, the first is that I think you're totally right to mention and name directly that for many folks, the institutional Jewish community, the Jewish establishment, the Jew, whatever term we're going to use, it is sort of this abstract caricature such that people who are within it are not granted the individual identities and an interesting differentiation from one another that we would grant in many other contexts. I think that's totally true. And it's something that those of us who are involved in one way or another with 
Jewish forms of activism or agitation towards those communities, um, towards those mainstream communities. It's something we need to really recognize and improve on. The other piece I would say, and that I don't, I don't know that you would disagree with. I think you may agree very strongly with this, um, is that that goes in the other direction too, and there are often caricatures of what somebody in Jewish Voice for Peace is going to talk like or how they're going to present themselves or what they're going to assert in conversations, how they're going to be. And and there's this caricature, I think, sometimes within um, more mainstream Jewish institutions of those who are more radical. And I guess I, so I was I was curious to sort of mention that, but also back out and just say what's the, the broader issue seems to be caricatures of the other in general and the lack of the, the inability to bridge these these vastly different frameworks um so i guess i just would love to hear from you along those lines how can we create more contexts like this limud conversation or or others where the caricatures can dissolve a little bit because they do exist we can't pretend they don't um and and we need to do something to to change what they are and how they manifest in people's minds. We jump into this vicious circle when we have conversation, and it starts by coming in, seeing someone with whom we disagree, and attacking them. So when I meet someone in Jewish Voice for Peace, let's say, my first instinct is to attack. And when I attack, what immediately happens is they get defensive. Or I'll talk about myself. When someone attacks me, I get defensive. And when I get defensive, I then become self-absorbed. Who are you to attack me, right? I, I retreat into my corner. I convince myself I'm right. And as I become self-absorbed, I become to self-victimize myself. I look at myself as a victim, and then I look at that person as an attacker. And I begin to dehumanize them as an attacker. And I look at them as someone who is bad, who is evil, who is seeking to harm me. And then from there, I begin to demonize them. And then once I demonize them and they lose that full sense of humanity, I go back to attacking them and I respond and parry with an attack. So you can bring people together and that's what then happens. What resetting the table does is bring in trained facilitators to prevent that from happening and to step into that vicious circle and help people to get out of it. I think another component is to work with people beforehand and help them so when they feel attacked, their instinct is not to get defensive. They feel a need to actually jump into that conversation and engage in it. So one of the things that I did in this conversation in Lamud, when I was talking about Zionism, I talk about Zionism, the dream, and I talk about Zionism, the reality. And I think that's a very much a important piece of this conversation. Because what I was able to say in that room is that the Palestinians are suffering, that this conflict is complicated, that Israel is not perfect, that I support Palestinian self-determination and aspirations, and that I spent a lot of my life trying to support peacemaking, reconciliation, shared society work, and justice for Palestinians and Israelis. And that's not something he was expecting me to, he was expecting me to say, or that he was expecting to hear. And I said, when I'm a Zionist, I'm talking about my dream and my aspiration for what Zionism should be. I see Zionism as Jacob Katznelson defined it, an aspiration towards morality and beauty. And I see it just as that, an aspiration. And I want to work toward that. And I said to the room that if you believe that the Jewish people are a people, have a right to self-determination, and if you believe that Israel exists, it should exist, it will continue to exist, 
then I want you to be a part of this conversation with me. And it's not debating about where Israel is today. It's debating about where Israel should be and why Israel should be there and what we should be doing to help Israel get there. Can we talk about what is the positive story about Israel for millennials and for, let's say, the generations coming forward when the occupation has already been going on for over 50 years? It's not a temporary thing anymore. I mean, it's over twice as long as as Israel existed before the occupation. So it's really kind of a clear feature of what Israel is today. And we have no idea if or when it's ever going to end. And so I think people are saying, well, how do I feel about Israel given that, number one? And then I think the other piece is that there are all sorts of problems in terms of religious pluralism and Jewish pluralism in Israel that people, I think, increasingly, and I think they will increasingly feel, look, I mean, if I'm not able to even go to the Western Wall and pray in the way that I pray in my synagogue back in America, if I even go to synagogue, you know, then all the more so, like, this isn't my place, right? This is not, so it's it's a place that I might wish well to in some way, and I might wish the people well, but it becomes increasingly sort of not my place. And I I guess what I'm asking is, like, how do we talk about this in a way that helps those folks to say like, yeah, but this is, this is still a place that you should have a strong connection to and that, you know, for example, you should work hard as, as you do, you know, I think for, for peace. I think what you're addressing is what I would call the story of shattered dreams. For many American Jews of a previous generation, Israel was an extension of that American dream. It was this shining light on a hill It was something that we could champion and that we could love. And it fulfilled every aspiration of the American Jewish imagination. It was a completely satisfying place. And now we're not living in an age of dreaming. We're living in an age of reality. That dream has now come true. And one of the things Amos Oz wrote in one of his books is the only way to keep a dream intact is to never try to fulfill it. And here we have a dream that is being fulfilled, a dream that is being attempted to fulfill. And Oz also wrote in that, you know, a dream come true is a dream that becomes worn, that becomes shabby, that leads to disappointment. A house is never as beautiful once built as it was in the picture book right? A poem or a novel is never as good as it is in someone's mind. Um, A garden is never as beautiful as the plants that you imagine will be planted in it. And I think right, right now we need to address the schism between the dream, the aspirations, the hope, the future, and the present where we are today. And I think it's very, very hard for a generation that dreamed of a Jewish state that was perfect, that was beautiful, that was flawless, to recognize that that dream as it exists today is not what it was in their minds. And that's not to say that it is not an incredible achievement. It is not to say that it's not something that we shouldn't appreciate, that we shouldn't love, and we shouldn't long for. But it is to say it's not what we thought it might be. It is to say we need to wrestle with that difference. And we need to learn to how, to ha- how to have a conversation with someone who never had that dream. My generation did not grow up on the dream of what a Jewish state could be. We did not grow up on 
the aspirations of what we wanted a Jewish state to be. We grew up in a reality, as you're saying, of a Jewish state, which was flawed. Yeah, one piece of this that I have been wrestling with a lot. So the framing of this whole unit of episodes for us and the framing very frequently around around conversations related to Israel is the relationship, the word relationship between America and Israel or American Jews and Israeli Jews or or some version of that. And so I've been reflecting on the nature of relationship and what I've been noticing in these conversations and in many of the others is that when we talk about the relationship between America and Israel as Americans, we talk, uh, in my experience, much more about Israel than we do about ourselves, um, which maybe that's good. Um, selfishness is not always the most aspirational virtue, but um, I think there's a lurking piece of this that's actually the, in terms of why millennial Jews or others might be distant, might feel distant from Israel, which is not always addressed, which is... Israelis wanting a relationship, but one in which Israel is is cherished and perceived as this beacon of of hope and fantasy in the future, and the diaspora, and that's the word that's usually used, is presumed to be less than and a place where those can can look at Israel from a distance and see see the see the joyous fantasy play out, but where they themselves are creating something that's that's less than. And I think that's that's part of what's at play for many millennial Jews that are really buckling down on the idea of diasporism and the idea that we we're doing something special too. And so I guess what this what this gets me to is like the relationships I have in my life that I cherish are those that are multi-directional, where those that are a two-way street, where I share a deep element of myself with someone, they share a deep element of themselves with me, we exchange around it, we share interests. And so I I feel sometimes that one of the biggest hurdles for us to, to overcome is this sense that Israel or some groups of Israelis aren't always as excited to really learn about American Judaism as as American Jews have been taught to feel about Israeli Judaism. This brings me back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, actually, where there's two parts of this section. The one is to go forth and be a blessing. The other is to be a great nation. And I think this actually represents in some ways the two conversations that our communities are having. Each, each group is only reading half the passage and missing the other imperative. And I think this is a duality with which we must wrestle. I think for many people in Israel, they read that and they jump to the imperative to be a great nation. And I think for many people in America, we read that and we jump to the imperative to go forth and be a blessing. And they look at the diaspora as that blessing. They recognize that Jews sat at the river in Babylon and weeped for Israel, but they also realize that the diaspora has existed for thousands of years. And even when the Jews were back in the land thousands of years ago, many Jews, in fact, most Jews still remained in exile willingly. They contributed, they gave money to rebuild the temple, and they played a role in Israel, but they still remained in the diaspora. And there's that duality where American Jews are out there trying to be that blessing, I think. And Israeli Jews are in Israel trying to be that nation. And we realize that if we want to take the imperative of Genesis of Judaism seriously, we need to work on both of those. And we need to see both of those imperatives as complementary and as equally important. And then 
that being said, we need to find a way to preserve Jewish identity in the diaspora. And I think that the Israeli people, the Israeli government needs to see that as something that is important too. How can we have a transnational, spiritual, religious, ethnic, and so forth community that has ties, that has a common homeland and territory, but where people outside of that territory have autonomy. And when they come visit that territory, they feel like they have equality and they feel like they're being included. And I think that this is a very profound idea that we need to advance. And I'm not sure that it's something that we are talking about. We need to begin to understand American Jewish identity in a way that doesn't situate itself exclusively in relationship to Israel. And we need to understand a Zionism that doesn't situate itself exclusively in the creation of the state of Israel. Again, Zionism was about strengthening the Jewish people, about unifying the Jewish people, giving us a sense of political existence, giving us the capacity to fulfill the religious commandments in the land of Israel where they can be fulfilled, and giving us a sense of existential security and of empowerment and of emancipation. One of the ideas behind Zionism as an emancipation movement, as a liberation movement, was again, not just about political ideology, but about cultural awakening. It was about creating that new Jew or that muscular Jew, as you were saying, when you talked about that muscular diaspora. It was about giving a sense of dignity, self-respect, and an ennobling spirit to the Jewish people. So we saw ourselves as people who didn't deserve the fate that we had been served, who wanted to take destiny into their own hands and to achieve a better future for themselves, who were given a lousy deck of cards and who turned them in for a new hand. And I think Zionism sought to do that for all of the Jewish people, wherever we are. And that the diaspora community, as you talked about a muscular diaspora, I think if we actually begin to study Zionism once more and to internalize the literature, the philosophy, the values, the aspirations that Zionists talked about, we'll actually act a bit more muscular. We'll have a bit more of the self-respect and the command of our voice and of our authority to advance what we believe and to engage in that discourse with Israel. And I also think you were saying we tend to tell young people how great Israel is. We're not understanding what the actual story of Zionism and of Israel is. That is a very shallow reason to support Israel because of, you know, because of the cherry tomato because Israel is a liberal democracy. There's lots of democracies in the world, and there's lots of countries that have created small fruit and vegetables. Technological innovation, security alliances with the United States and so forth aren't reasons to support Israel. The reason to support Israel is because it actually affirms my existence as a Jew and my existence as an American Jew. And I think when we engage in that discourse around Zionism, we create a paradigm in which the diaspora does matter in which we have a powerful voice and in which the state of Israel, the government and the people need to have a greater deal of respect for the role of the, the diaspora in this conversation as a complementary force and as a complementary mode of political existence for the Jewish people and as a way again to be that light unto the nations. So I have a question, maybe this gets us extra bird's eye view, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, Diaspora, the word. We've used it many, many times in this conversation. And it has clear utility in a conversation about Israel in that it, it refers to those Jews that are not in Israel um, or don't live in Israel. But I also want to question whether if, if we want to do all of the things that we all are agreeing we want to do in terms of building 
a strong diaspora Judaism is the way to do it under the frame of the word diaspora, which I think implies it implies a separateness from something as opposed to its own entity. Like whenever I refer to American Jews as part of a diaspora, it's defining them by their relationship to something external to where they live. And so I'm curious if we want if we want to create this burgeoning Jewish future that that you're describing as the as the Zionist dream, um, it's certainly a Zionist dream that I am more excited about than many I hear articulated other otherwise. Is the frame of diaspora ultimately the way to do it, or do we need to really just start talking about building American Judaism, building French Judaism to to choose the third biggest Jewish community in in the world? Is it building? Argentinian Judaism and 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 creating a sense that all of those are dependent on one another with also this unique situation in Israel that is defining as a Jewish state um, to inform and affect those other Judaisms, but but sort of granting them each a form of identity that they might not have under the frame simply of diaspora, which groups them all into one box. That is a very good question. I don't think that American Jewish identity or diaspora Jewish identity should situate itself exclusively in relationship to Israel. And I don't think it is also contradictory to say that I'm okay with the term diaspora because I do see the Jewish state in many ways as my home. I see it as the place where I came from personally through my descendants throughout history. And I see it as the, the nucleus of our civilization historically and in a contemporary senses way, in a secular way, and even in a religious way, of course. So I think that diaspora connotes a relationship to, to the land of Israel. It connotes that that is a homeland for me, that that is something that is important to me. And I don't want to diminish the prospects of having a Jewish state and of what that means. But I also think that there are, as you're saying, multifarious Jewish worlds and that we can be in a diaspora, I think. We can exist in relationship to Israel without existing exclusively in relationship with Israel. I think, though, as you're saying, we need to be careful that when we use the term diaspora, it doesn't have a negative value. It's not derogatory. And it's actually part of the Jewish cause. Grace Paley, I think, once wrote of Jews that our role was to be a splinter in the toe of civilization and to aggravate the conscience of the world, of humanity. And I think one way to do that is to have a Jewish state, is to have a seat at the family of nations. And that's what Zionism sought to do. It sought to restructure power balances in a nationalist age where they said people have power, voice, and the security by having a nation. In a time of nation states, our nation needs a state. And it sought to give us that power to aggravate the conscience of the world and to have our own security and to give our voice a national stage. That being said, I think having a diaspora allows us to play that role in a more complex way in other nations, in other countries throughout the world. So I actually would say that the diaspora is a primary cultural feature of Jewish existence and of Zionism. And it's a word that we should actually work to rehabilitate and reclaim in some ways. So while we're on terms a little bit, I'd love to look at another one. I'd love to look at pro-Israel, which looms very large in this conversation. How 
How do you think about the term pro-Israel? Do you use it? Do you recommend for others to? Um, or might you say that there are some problems or issues with it that could cause us to reconsider how and when and if we use the term pro-Israel? The term pro-Israel is counterproductive. It's self-defeating. And it makes it harder to educate about Israel, to engage with Israel, and to advocate for Israel. What we need to do is change the discourse, create a new paradigm, and use terminology that allows us to better relate to Israel, understand Israel, talk about Israel, love Israel, wrestle with Israel, and even critique Israel that can be heard and that can bring us together rather than tear us apart. When I use the term pro-Israel in an advocacy context, it fails because people then assume, A, I must be anti-something else, and B, that if being pro-Israel is a political or ideological statement that I feel the need to make, there must also be a justification for being anti-Israel. So I think we can strike it off in terms of advocacy. Then in terms of education and engagement, the term pro-Israel ends up turning into a sort of litmus test to shut down other people or to ostracize other people. It becomes a sort of competition. Well, you're not really pro-Israel if this. We can use it to actually kick people out and exclude people. And I'm not sure what it even means. What does it mean to be pro-Israel? Does it mean you support the government, the people, the right to exist, the idea of it? Again, it's a totally confusing and in some ways meaningless word. And it, you would never put the word pro in front of any other country because it really wouldn't make much sense in any other context. So I think we have an issue because we get into a debate in our community about this organization isn't pro-Israel enough. This person's too pro-Israel. This person's not pro-Israel. And I think that we use that as a term to signify something, but for everyone, it signifies something else. So we're all talking about different things. I think we need to find new terminology, and perhaps one of the words that we can be using is Zionism, or perhaps we need to tell people that we simply refuse to use any one single word to describe how someone relates to Israel, and we'd rather engage in a more nuanced conversation about it. So for example, when people tell me that my organization or this organization is not pro-Israel enough or is too pro-Israel, my immediate response is, what does that mean? What, what would you like them to be saying? What are they saying that they should not be saying? How can we have this conversation? I think what we should be talking about in a community is coming together around a discourse where we can all say, we support the right of Israel to exist. We believe in Zionism. We believe that the Jewish people are tied to some part of that land and have a right to have a political existence and sovereignty in some part of that land. And let's have a conversation about what that means. Let's say you are a person who really does feel a connection to Israel and doesn't want to be rejectionistic about Israel, but wants to say, what can I do as an American Jew who doesn't want to make Aliyah and move to Israel to say that this has to change? Otherwise, like I can't say that my great-grandchildren should continue to feel connected to this place if this situation has continued for a hundred years. So there has to be something that we can do to try to help Israel become that place that we dream or hope that it could be. And then there's a lot of sense that whatever folks want to do, if it's hard edge tactics, gets slammed down by, the, by many of the legacy institutions. So thinking about something like boycott, not the BDS movement, but something like boycotts, which are, again, effective 
protest techniques often used against entities that you think actually do have a redeeming value, you know, but because that's being lumped in together, any kind of boycott is immediately called supporting BDS and therefore put you out of the uh, community. People aren't sort of able to really have a toolbox of ways that they can try to have a serious impact. And therefore I think they give up and they say, well, I guess like I'm either checking out or I guess I'm in support of the other side. And I think that's a tragic situation. And I'm just wondering if there's any way that we can restructure and reimagine the idea that there can be strong American Jewish protest movements against what they see as these very pessimistic and frightening directions that may be going on in Israel without having to sort of turn that into a, a situation in which they're kind of understood by the legacy institutions as kind of enemies or really unfortunate results and, and vice versa. Like what, what, what's actually okay for them to do? I think what we need to do is make sure that we're having an exchange of ideas and we're having genuine discourse across divides and that we let go of the fear that listening to someone else's narrative, giving them a space in a conversation to share something that's antithetical to my narrative, to my identity, or to my own understanding of Israel or Judaism, that to do that, I have to abandon who I am, what I believe, or how I see myself. While I find the boycott divestment sanctions movement to be something that is anti-Israel, that contains lots of elements of anti-Semitism, and that is very harmful to the Jewish community, to the Jewish state, and ultimately to Palestinians, and to a just peace and future for justice and prosperity for Israelis and for Palestinians, when I hear someone tell me they support the boycott divestment sanctions movement, I repress the urge to try to attack or belittle or undermine or denigrate, and I ask them why. No one ever tells me that it's because they're anti-Semitic or it's because they hate Jews. Many times it's Jews who tell me that they actually do care about Israel. They want to make Israel a better place, and they're engaging in a boycott or in civil disobedience out of their love for Israel and their understanding of Jewish values. And I may disagree with the tactic. I may disagree with the approach. I may even see it differently than them and, and think perhaps they're a bit myopic. Uh, they're a bit narrow-minded. They're ignoring the facts. They're interpreting this through preconceived conceptions and perceptions and interpretations that are off base. All of that being said, I can still see them as someone who's trying to approach this with some compassion, with some sympathy, and with some goodwill. And I approach them from that place. I have found many people who, who protest what I do and my organizations and the things I say would come work with me hand in hand to support funding opportunities for Israelis and Palestinians to go to camps together, to have contact with each other, and to work together. So what I say to my friends is whether you support a one-state solution or a two-state solution or a state of Palestine or a state of Israel, whatever your end political game is, none of that will be possible until there's an infrastructure for coexistence and of goodwill between both peoples, until we start to get past the levels of mistrust and fear and anxiety and have two people in this, between Israelis and Palestinians who trust each other, who are willing to take a risk for peace or for justice, who are willing to take a risk on security because they think they can and they can still be safe. No political solution will happen until we find what we can do today to make any political solution possible. And I find that 
from the far right to the far left and everywhere in between, I can typically get people to come together around people-to-people work that de-escalates tensions, that de-radicalizes those prone to violence, and that brings people together for trust building and mutual cooperation and the ennobling of both peoples and uh, economic ties between both peoples. So I think very tangibly, what I might end with is a proposal to those on the left, those on the right, those who are in legacy institutions and those who are boycotting them to come together today around ways to export reconciliation and coexistence to our community and to import it over there where we're trying to bring people together. And as a Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger, a friend of mine who works for Ruth Shorashim, an organization that brings religious Jewish settlers and Palestinian refugees together in the West Bank, he likes to say, don't worry, only the majority is against us. And I think that there may be a majority against us, but when we focus the conversation, we find that there really is a majority with us. Thank you so much, Zach, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. Uh, We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a one-time basis or a monthly recurring basis. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>